Hey everybody, and welcome to ARE Live. I'm Chris Hopstock, Architect Education Specialist here at Black Spectacles and your host for ARE Live. Today, we're going to be joined by Black Spectacles Virtual Workshop Instructor, Emily Apple, who will walk through five practice management mock exam questions. We'll also be doing a live Q&A session at the end of the episode to answer any of your burning PCM questions. If you think of any questions you'd like to ask Emily in the Q&A, make sure to post them in our ARE community as the webinar chat feature won't be available today. Go to community.blackspectacles.com and post your questions or comments on the PCM mock exam episode page. Everyone who posts in our ARE community thread today will be entered to win a free Black Spectacles t-shirt. So head over and just say hello. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to see if you won. Our next ARE Live will be on December 15th, 2022. We'll be uh, walking through a project management case study looking at six to eight brand new questions. Our expert guest, Darian Ziegler, will show you how to navigate case studies on the ARE and give you some test-taking strategies to help you pass. Our Black Friday sale is also going on now through November 29th. You can get up to 30% off for the life of your subscription by signing up for a new study plan or upgrading your membership today. To learn more about the study materials Black Spectacles offers or to watch the episode again later, go to go.blackspectacles.com. Although the episode will be available in both video and podcast audio formats after the airing, we'll be sharing Emily's screen during today's ARE Live, so we recommend watching the webinar to better see how Emily works through these questions. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome today's guest, Emily Eppel. Emily is a practicing architect in New York City who earned her license in 2020. Outside of Black Spectacles, Emily is in the process of starting her own architecture firm focused on residential design. So welcome, Emily. Hi, Chris. Thank you for that introduction, and thank you for the invitation to be here today. Yeah, we'll of go course. Ahead. Yeah, thanks. Um, I guess we'll go ahead and get started with our first question. So it says, refer to the exhibit. A project manager is preparing a staffing plan for an upcoming civic project. The architect has agreed to provide value analysis services during the design development stage as a supplemental service and has agreed to a fee of $9,000 for that scope of work. The firm expects that the principal will spend 15 hours reviewing the renderings and that the project manager will spend 25 hours providing design direction to the designer working on them. The firm has a net multiplier of 3.0 and the project manager estimates that 18 labor hours will be required of the designer to complete the renderings. Which designer should the project manager staff the project with? Designer one, designer three, designer two, and designer four are our options for the answers to this question. So as stated in the question, we will be using the exhibit to answer this. The table above includes the employees with their hourly billable rate, their utilization rates, and their experience level in years. So we are trying to determine which designer is the best option based on the information that we've been given in the exhibit and the prompt. So ultimately, the problem is going to require some math. So the first thing I want to point out is that the overall fee for the project is $9,000. We know how many hours and the billable rates of the principal and the project manager from the prompt, and we will use that information to determine how much of the $9,000 fee is available for the designer's labor. To see if we can, we're gonna use that to see if we can narrow down our options based on the billable rates that was given in the exhibit. So to start this process, Let's first figure out the total amount of dollars from the fee that are going both to the principal and the project manager. We will look at the exhibit to find their billable rates and look at the prompt to find how many hours they're going to be contributing to the project. So I'm going to use the calculator and the history that it provides rather than writing this out on the whiteboard just to save some time. This is a timed exam. Um, so anywhere we can cut corners and not have to spend so much time in the whiteboard, it can definitely help you overall. So from the exhibit, we know that the principal makes 
$225 per hour. And from the prompt, we know that he will be spending 15 hours um, on this project. So we're going to take two, 225 times 15, and that gives us $3,375. Next, we're going to find the same thing for the project manager. Their billable rate is $150 per hour, and the prompt told us they would be spending 25 hours. So that's going to cost $3,750. So now that we know how much it's costing to have the principal and the project manager work on this project, we're going to subtract out those numbers that we just found from the overall fee of $9,000. So that's the handy thing about the history. We still have these numbers that we just found listed over here for us, so we don't have to write them all down in the whiteboard. So I'm just taking 9,000 minus 3,750 and minus 3,375. And that gives us $1,875. So that's how much we have left to pay a designer. We know that the project manager estimated that the designer is going to need 18 hours. Um, we know that because it's listed here in prompt. So we are going to take the amount we have left over and just simply divide that by the 18 hours. And that gives us $104.17. We would round this up to 17 since we're talking about dollars. So we're going to look at this number and then we're going to go back to the exhibit and see which designers have a hourly billable rate that is lower than the $104. Um, in this case, we have designer one has a $100 billable rate, designer two has 110. So designer two is no longer an option that would work in this scenario because um, they are over the $104 that we just found. Designer three has an $85 hourly billable rate, and designer four has a $95 hourly billable rate. So designer one, three, and four are still all viable options as the correct answer. So to continue to narrow this down, we're going to look over at the utilization rates for the remaining designers and see who has the most time available. So it looks like designer three has the lowest utilization rate, meaning they have the capacity to take on this project. You can see here they're listed at 0.75, whereas designer one is at 0.9 and designer four is at 0.82. So this is gonna um, point us to the correct answer that designer three is the correct option. They have the correct hourly billable rate and the lowest utilization rate. Um, I also just want to note in this problem, um, we are given some excess information. The net multiplier um, is not going to be used in this question. We can see that in the prompt. It's told us that the net multiplier is 3.0. Um, the billable rates already account for the net multiplier. So this is information that they often include to make things a little more confusing. And it's not necessary as you're trying to answer the question. And also um, the experience levels, that also is a little bit of extra information um, because all of the designers have relatively the same experience. Um, it goes from six to nine years of experience. So that's not gonna be something that makes you choose one designer over the other. Um, so just as a reminder, designer three was the correct answer here. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up that um, that piece of extraneous information in this question, the net multiplier. And um, I just want to say, you know, em Emily makes this seem so easy as she goes through it, and uh, and that's great. But I, I think that's the result of a lot of practice on this type of a question. Um, if you're if you're sitting uh, during the exam and trying to figure out how to work through these numbers, you're going to be wasting some valuable test time doing that. It's it's really important to have a good understanding of what these numbers mean and how you can manipulate them to answer a question like this. Um, for example, when you see hourly billable rate in the question, you just need to know without thinking about it that the net multiplier is already applied. That's how you got that hourly billable rate um, by multiplying the, um, the direct labor by the net multiplier, right? Um, 
And, and the other thing here is I, I know this is a pretty tricky question because three of the designers uh, make sense within the hourly um, rate that we that we determined 104.17. Um, I would say that the the standard that NCARB goes by with these types of value judgment based questions where you're you're making a a decision um, that's it's it's not exactly clear what the correct answer is. The utilization rate is really heavily relied upon by NCARB in making decisions like this. Um, so if if no information is given to the contrary, like like there is no information in this question saying that the principal thinks experience level is really important, I would I would sort of ignore the experience level and just go by utilization rate. And the last thing I want to say about this question is it is is loosely based on um, the NCARB exam question number 43. Uh, and we, we've been um, studying those exams pretty closely and, and writing some new questions for our exams and uh, have been basing all of our ARI Live questions on uh, what we've learned from studying those exams. So with that said, Emily, let's take it on to number two. Okay, sounds good. So I'm going to go ahead and switch to a new tab in our whiteboard over here. Um, that is a pretty handy feature, and so you don't have to delete any of your work from other questions in case you need to come back to it at the end of the exam. You can open up these different tabs, so I just wanted to point that out before we get started. All right, question two. An architectural firm, FJ Architects LLC, is the architect of record for a new healthcare project. BK Designs LLC is both the design architect and an owner-hired consultant. BK Designs LLC is designated as the initial decision maker or IDM in the contract between owner and contractor. The owner and the contractor are in a dispute about a change order related to the review of a submittal for fire dampers. The submittal was reviewed by FJ Architects LLC and the mechanical engineer on the project who contracted directly with FJ Architects LLC via the AIA C401. The IDM requests that FJ Architects LLC assist them in evaluating the claim. Which of the following is a valid reason for FJ Architects LLC to decline this request? Our options are, the dispute should be moved directly to mediation, the situation could be resolved without the use of an IDM, participating creates a conflict of interest, and the owner refused to provide an additional service fee. So for this question, I think um, it's easiest just to start from the top of the possible answers um, and work our way down to try to determine which one makes the most sense. Um, so if we look at this first option, it says the dispute should move directly to mediation. Um, if we know anything about initial decision makers, we know that they are the initial decision, meaning they should be like the first step. Um, and then if a conclusion cannot be reached, then it moves on to mediation. Um, so that's not looking like the correct answer here. The next option is the situation could be resolved without the use of an IDM. Again, the IDM is an initial step in the contract between the owner and the contractor. Um, so you would probably want to use the IDM. So this is also not looking like the correct answer. The third option, participating creates a conflict of interest. So in this situation, we're talking about FJ Architects LLC, who is the architect of record, um, which you might even just think on your own experiences in the industry, but architects tend to be pulled into every aspect <laughs> of the project. Um, and there isn't a real reason it would be a conflict of interest. So they are the architect of record, so they're very involved in the process and they um, would know a lot of information to be able to assist. So that doesn't seem like an option that makes sense to me either. The last option is the owner refused to provide an additional service fee. So to determine if this is a valid option, we need to know um, if FJ Architects should be receiving an additional service fee. Um, we would find this information in a contract and knowing which contract is also very important to solving this question. So there are a lot of players in this scenario. So before the workshop, I drew out a quick diagram on the whiteboard just to better explain the contractual relationships. And I drew it out beforehand just to save some time um, during this podcast. Um, but it 
it's not something that you would necessarily need to draw out during the exam. If you already know which contracts go with which relationship, then you definitely don't need to spend time drawing this. It was just easier for sake of explaining during the podcast. So the players that we have, we have the owner, we have the architect of record, who is FJ Architects. We have the contractor, and then we have the owner consultant, BK Designs. We also have the mechanical engineer who is directly uh, linked to the architect of record by the C401. Um, and then we have this dashed line to show that the um, owner consulted BK Designs is the initial decision maker listed in the contract between the owner and the contractor. And then I went ahead and I listed these important contracts. The contract between the owner and the architect of record is the B101, and between the owner and the contractor is the A101. And I just wanted to jump in and point out that even though neither of those contracts are uh, noted in this question, um, on the ARE, I would, I would make the assumption that if you're talking about relationships between parties and nothing is said to the contrary, that those are the contracts that are in use. Um, also note that AIAC 401 is noted in the question itself. Um, that sort of like gives a hint that we're using the standard AIA contracts here and, and you can, um, it's, it's not an extravagant leap of logic to assume that we're using the B101 and the A101 also. Thank you, Chris. Um, so based on the answer option that we were looking at and the initial question information, we know that the two players that we are looking at are the owner and FJ Architects, the architect of record. Um, so the contract that links the architect of record to the owner is the AIA B101, as I mentioned. Um, it's the agreement between the owner and the architect. So this is where we would go to find out if the architect is owed an additional service fee as the answer option suggests. So according to the B101 2017, Article 4.2.11, assisting an, an initial decision maker in making a decision about the project is an additional service. So if the owner refuses to provide an additional service fee to FJ Architects, the firm has a valid reason to decline assisting the IDM in making a decision because contractually they are owed an additional service fee. So that makes the um, that makes this last option the correct answer. The owner refused to provide an additional service fee. And I just want to point out that this question is um, like like Emily was explaining is is really testing a somewhat simple piece of information that that um, that you understand what types of things are an additional service. Um, for an architect on, on, on a typical project. Uh, a really simple way this question could have been written is, um, you know, which of the following is an additional service request? And one of the answers is um, uh, if, the, if the architect has to work with an, a third party IDM, and that would be the correct answer. That's a really simple sort of like, you can memorize it type of a question, but that's not uh, how most, if not all of the questions on the ARE are going to be. They're going to be like this, where there's a pretty large scenario created and it's somewhat convoluted and you've got to sort of weed through it and, and uh, get down to that root piece of knowledge that they're really testing you on. So I think that's a super important um, thing to remember when you're faced with a question like this with a convoluted scenario is take a step back and, and just think, what are they really trying to figure out if I know? Um, in this question, it's a relatively simple piece of information. The, the other test taking tip I can provide on this one is the, the two options, uh, the two first options here, the dispute moving directly to mediation and that it could be resolved without an IDM. If you if you understand dispute resolution, you, you can probably recognize that those two things are essentially the same. Um, not resolved, you know, being resolved without an IDM would be moving directly to mediation. So since those answers are essentially the same, neither can be correct. Um, so if you know that and you're still confused by this question, you could at least reduce it to a 50-50 chance and give yourself a pretty good um, chance at getting it correct. So with that, I think we can move on to number three. Great. Let me just change my whiteboard and clear my calculator history before we move on. All right, question three. Two former colleagues have been working together on a few projects. 
and are ready to take the leap and begin their own practice together. The two have never created a business entity before and are researching the available options. They want to first understand what they should take into consideration when choosing the appropriate type of entity. What are some considerations the architect should weigh when choosing a legal entity? Check the three that apply. Our options are whether or not the firm will have partners, whether or not the firm's revenue will be taxed, the level of risk the firm is willing to undertake, how the firm will be managed, the amount of protection of their personal assets from legal liability, and how long they expect the practice to stay in business. So again, with this question, I think just starting from the top and determining which answers we think might make sense and then narrowing it down to the best three is the best course of action here. So our first option is whether or not the firm will have partners. Um, this seems like it would be important to clarify in this scenario. The prompt says they are creating a business together, but is it going to be 50-50? Will one person be the other person's boss? That seems like an important step to figure out as they are um, trying to pick a legal structure. Our second option is whether or not the firm's revenue will be taxed. Whether or not the firm's revenue will be taxed um, is a little tricky, and I think it's one that we should flag and look back as we narrow it down. So I'm going to go ahead and flag both of these for now, because um, I think they're both two options that might work. Our third option is the level of risk the firm is willing to undertake. So this doesn't stand out to me as um, a reason to choose a certain business entity over another because creating your own business in any sense is risky no matter what um, and the level of project related risks that they're willing to take on pertains more to what their insurance needs would be not necessarily the type of legal structure so I'm I'm not thinking this is one of our best options the fourth option how the firm will be managed. So this goes back um, to one of the other options about will the firm have partners? And I think it's important to clarify early on, like I said, if they're not 50-50 partners, is one of them the owner, one of them's the manager? Um, that's something that would need to be clarified pretty quickly. So that looks like that could be an option. So I'm gonna go ahead and click that as well. The fifth option is the amount of protection of their personal assets from legal liability. So to me, this jumps out as a pretty important consideration. Um, I recently applied for my business license as an LLC rather than a sole proprietorship um, because I wanted to protect my personal savings accounts um, in case there was ever a claim from my business. Um, and sole proprietorships, they don't offer that level of personal asset protection, but LLCs do. So it was a big factor in me deciding what type of legal structure I was going to move forward with. Um, and I would think that would be even more important when you're going into business with another person um, who can create additional risk for you as well. So this definitely seems important. Um, let's go ahead and click it as well and we will move on to see if there's anything else that sticks out to us as more important. The sixth option, um, how long they expect to pra the practice to stay in business. So this doesn't seem like the correct option to me just because I can't think of any specific entity type that stands out to me that it would be beneficial if your business were to be only short-term versus long-term. Um, so I'm not thinking that's one of the correct options. So to go back to the ones that stuck out to me as possible options that were correct, it was whether or not the firm will have partners, whether or not the firm's revenue will be taxed, how the firm will be managed, and the amount of protection of their personal assets from legal liability. So we know that we can only pick three. So we have to eliminate one of these. So I do wanna go back and dive a little deeper into the option that discussed taxation. So how a business is taxed is an important consideration when you're choosing a legal entity, but the wording here is important. The answer option says whether or not the firm's revenue will be taxed. So all the legal entities, all the legal structures have their revenue taxed in some way. Some options are a separate federal tax and some are just passed through as income tax, um, but that is not clarified here. So the, this option um, kind of makes it seem like some legal structures allow you to avoid taxation altogether, 
um, and that's not accurate. So uh, this is the answer that I would eliminate as not correct, which let's take that out. That leaves us with um, whether or not the firm will have partners, how the firm will be managed, and the amount of protection of their personal assets from legal liability. So the first two options, um, I think sometimes they're so obvious that people forget about them because before you're even really picking a legal structure, if you're going into business with a partner, you're already discussing how you're going to be partners. And then you're thinking of picking a legal structure as a sec like a different step. Um, when in reality, determining how you're going to be partners is part of picking that legal structure. So that's why those two are um, the first important steps. And then the next uh, most important step after that would be the amount of protection uh, for your personal assets from legal liability. Um, the Architect's Handbook of Professional Practice is a great resource for these different types of business structures um, and why they should be considered. There's Table 5.1 in that book um, that goes over all the different types of business structures uh, and like the pros and cons of each. Um, also, um, the Sunday workshops that we have at Black Spectacles. I teach the practice management section and we have a workshop that really dives in to these different business structures. And I think that's definitely another good resource. If you're someone who's not great at reading tables, um, we have a lot more discussions about the, the benefits of each structure type. Yeah, and I, I uh, when I wrote this question, I included that um, that second option here, whether or not the firm's revenue will be taxed, just, just really because I wanted to talk about that point. And I, I appreciate your explanation, Emily, but just to sort of double down on it, I think um, a lot of people have a misconception that um, maybe like pass-through taxation means not taxed or that some of these entities aren't taxed in some way, and, and, and that's simply not the case. If there was an entity type or two that didn't pay taxes, that would be the entity type that everybody picked because uh, that would be that would be great, um, but but that's just not the case. It's, it's just whether or not the, the firm is taxed um, at a corporate level or if the taxes are paid on the, um, on the owner or owner's um, personal tax returns. Um, so I just wanted to point that out. Um, the, other, the other thing about a question like this is, um, we, we talk a lot about um, pacing on the exam and how in, in theory you have about two and a half minutes on average per question. Um, but we know some questions, particularly case studies, and maybe the math questions are going to take a little bit longer. So um, by that logic, obviously some questions have to be answered in less than two and a half minutes. And I think this is one of the ones that you need to be able to answer pretty quickly. And I think what that means is not obsessing over a question like this. Um, you can certainly find yourself trying to reason through some of these answers and convince yourself that they're correct. Like, for example, the level of risk the firm is willing to undertake. You could say, well, um, you know, a sole proprietorship is super risky, so um, maybe, you know, that is a correct answer because some are more risky than others because they don't um, protect your assets. But um, nobody's ever thinking uh, when they're creating an entity, um, you know, I'm feeling pretty risky today. Let me just go with the sole proprietorship. I want to risk it all. No, that's that's not a consideration that people are 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 um, making. People are looking for entities that protect their assets. So it's not really the level of risk; it's whether or not they protect uh, their assets. Um, so just just wanted to point that out as uh, you know, this is definitely a question type that you don't want to overthink and sort of just go through each choice, decide yes or no, and and move on to the more difficult ones. And with that in mind, let's move on to perhaps a more difficult one, uh, number four. Great, all right. I will switch the tab here. I'm also just making a note. I know I didn't write anything on this whiteboard, but to go ahead and change it, because in theory, if you had notes there, it's nice to have a clean slate as you move on. So our fourth question, refer to the exhibit. Two partners, Joey and Rachel, are creating a new firm and are discussing which legal structure makes most sense. The two partners envision a firm that will have a maximum of 20 employees at its peak, and they prefer a smaller studio-style office and will focus on residential architecture. They created a list of their concerns in order of importance from top to bottom. Which business structure would be appropriate if the partners agree to ensure that each of their top two concerns are addressed? Check the three that apply. Our options are limited liability corporation, C-corporation, general partnership, two separate sole proprietorships, 
S Corporation and Limited Liability Partnership. And just to take a look at our exhibit, we have two columns, one for Joey, one for Rachel. Joey, um, it's important that there's no federal taxation for him. It's the simplest formation possible and the ability to have foreign owners slash shareholders. Rachel wants to not have personal liability for the entity's obligations, not be liable for other partners' actions, and no federal taxation. So based on that information, um, I do think this question is one of those that's easier to answer through the process of elimination. Um, and like Chris said, anything that can save us some time on the exam is great. And I think this is an example of that. So we can see from the exhibit that one of Rachel's top two concerns is the need for personal asset protection. Knowing that, we can go ahead and rule out general partnership as a possible answer because it does not offer personal asset protection. Um, we can also rule out two separate sole proprietorships um, because the two architects are creating a firm together. Two separate firms is not really relevant in this scenario. Um, so it would not be a possible answer choice that makes sense. So now we just have to rule out the last incorrect answer. So it's important to reread the question and see that we are basing our answer on Joey and Rachel's top two concerns. So Joey's third concern of ability to have foreign owners slash shareholders is also not very relevant to this question. All four of the options left do have some personal asset protection. So the next thing I would look for to see which one stands out as incorrect is how they are taxed. So a C corporation is the only one of the four choices that files a federal tax return. So now we can go ahead and eliminate that option. So just to clarify, we had limited liability corporation as a possible, C corporation as possible, S corporation as possible, and limited liability partnership. And then we just determined that a C corporation um, is the only one that has a federal tax return, which was not something that Joey wanted. So we can eliminate C corporation. And that leaves us with three correct answers. Um, let's see. Um, that leaves us with limited liability corporation, S corporation, and limited liability partnership. Limited liability corporations offer personal asset protection, they're not federally taxed, and they're relatively easy to, to set up. Um, the easy to set up part is um, one of the bigger differences between a limited liability corporation and an S corporation. Otherwise, these are two pretty similar business structures. A limited liability partnership is similar to a general partnership with the key difference being a LLP offers personal asset protection where a general partnership does not. So LLPs are a less risky option when it comes to partnerships. Um, I guess the one other thing to point out um, about the C Corporation, um, it has uh, the ability to be a really big entity. Um, it could be like employee, like thousands of employees, a giant corporation. Um, so if you were still kind of battling between C Corporation and S Corporation, you might look back to this line in the middle, the two partners envision a firm that will have a maximum 20 employees. Um, so it's not really a draw that the C Corporation allows you to have a big company. Um, so that could be another reason to eliminate that option. Um, again, the table 5.1 in the Architect's Handbook of Professional Practice is what I use to learn these different legal structures. Um, and determine which ones have federal taxation, which ones offer personal asset protection, and the ownership and management styles of each structure. Yeah, and, uh, one just one, one more thing I'd say about uh, C corps is that um, they're typically reserved for like you know companies that are going to end up being publicly traded. You know, if you think about a C corp, think about um, you know, like Facebook and, and Amazon or, or whatever um, that, that you see being traded on the market. Massive companies, I'm, I'm not sure of, of any architecture firms that use that uh, type of a structure, but um, it's, it's pretty uncommon um, and it definitely doesn't make sense for the firm that's described in this scenario with 20 employees, smaller studio style office and focusing on residential architecture. That um, type of a structure really doesn't make that sense and that much sense. And the reason is that um, usually people are considering or partners are considering that type of a structure if they need to raise money by selling stock or by, by having shareholders. Um, 
um, contribute money um, to the company. And um, there's there's just a lot of filings um, involved with a C corporation that if your revenue doesn't really um, makes if, if it's not high enough, quite frankly, um, those filings are really going to eat into your profit, and and it's just not going to make sense. So. Um, C corporations, pretty uncommon. I would say uh, limited liability corporations are one of the more common uh, these days that are S corps um, for, for um, small firms that are getting started out. Um, another thing about this question, uh, well, two more things actually that I wanna mention is that um, the Joey's number two um, concern here, simplest formation possible. That word possible is really doing a lot of heavy lifting in this question. Um, you know the simplest formation theoretically is a you know the sole proprietorship or in this case two sole proprietorships because there really is no formation of them it's just um if, if you do work and you don't have an entity you are by default sole proprietorship so that word possible is really a key because um <clears throat> given rachel's concerns um two sole proprietorships don't don't work um so just keep that in mind there and then um like I was saying, uh, sole proprietorships aren't an entity per se. Um, so since this question is asking about a business structure, I would sort of eliminate off the bat. I wouldn't consider a sole proprietorship an entity since you're not actually forming it. Um, with that, let's move on to our last question here before we jump into some Q&A. Great. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and change my whiteboard and we'll get started with question five. An architect has been awarded a new construction hospitality project and is waiting to develop the work plan until after they have determined the total hours that the project team can devote to the project. They have agreed to the following with the client and their consultants. A budget of $10 million. The architect's fee is 9.5% of the construction cost. An additional $200,000 for su supplemental services. The consultant's fee is 25% of the architect's basic service fee. The project team's average billable rate is $250 per hour, and the project team members will all work the same number of hours. The principal expects to spend 200 hours on the project and has a billable rate of $315 per hour. The architect targets a profit margin of 12%, and has a net multiplier of 3.25. How many total hours can the project team devote to the project round down to the nearest hour? So again, this is a math problem and it is one that will probably eat up a lot of your time on the exam. Um, to get started with this, um, I just want to re-highlight um, these numbers here, the budget of 10 million, the architect's fee, 9.5% of construction, $200 for supplemental services, and the consultant's fee, 25% of the architect's basic service fee. So first, we're going to go ahead and find the architect's gross fee, which is 9.5% of the construction cost plus a fixed fee for supplemental services. So we are gonna take the $10 million that was listed as the budget, and put that into our calculator here and take that times 0 0.095 which is 9.5 percent as a decimal and we will find $950,000 but then we're going to add $200,000 because that's how much they're receiving for supplemental services And here we find $1,150,000. So that is the architect's gross fee. So since we're going to be doing um, a fair amount of math, I am going to go ahead and um, write these out in the whiteboard as well, just so I can label each of the numbers, even though they're listed in our memory, um, having them labeled, I think will be helpful. So the architect's gross fee was, one million one hundred fifty thousand. Okay, so after finding that, we're going to find the consultant's fees next, because we're going to then subtract that amount from the architect's gross fee um, in our next step to find the architect's net fee. But so for now, just find the consultant's fee. 
um, and that's based on a percentage of the architect's basic fee. So the basic fee does not include the supplemental services. So the basic fee was the 10 million times 0 0.095 that we already found, which was 950,000. So we can just write that down here too. Architect's basic fee. nine hundred fifty thousand and then we're going to take that number and take that times by 0.25 which is 25 percent written as a decimal and that gives us two hundred thirty seven thousand five hundred dollars that is the consultant's fee for the project so i'm going to click back down here and write that out consultant's fee 237,500. All right, so next we're gonna find the architect's net fee and we're, gonna, we're going to do that by subtracting the consultant's fee that we just found from the architect's gross fee. And we have the architect's gross fee listed here as the 1,150,000. And we're gonna take that minus the consultant fee that we have listed as 237,500. And that gives us the architect's net fee. And also just a reminder, when you're flipping back and forth between the whiteboard and the calculator, um, you need to make sure you click into the whiteboard to type, otherwise you'll start typing into your calculator. So this was the architect's net fee. It was $912,500. So next we're gonna subtract the principal's labor from the architect's net fee to determine how much total fee is available for the project team. Um, so to find the principal's labor, we're going to use the 200 hours that was given to us in the prompt here um, and their billable rate of $315 per hour. So we're gonna take 200 times 315. And that gives us $63,000 for the principal's labor. We're going to subtract that from $912,500, which was the architect's net fee. And that gives us $849,500 left over. That's for the project team. So left for the project team, $849,500. So our final step is to divide um, this by the project team's average hourly rate, which again was given to us in the prompt here. The project team's average billable rate is $250 per hour. So this is already in our calculator, divide by 250, and that equals 3,000. 398 hours. I'm gonna go ahead and type that into our answer box. Um, so again, this prompt has extra information that you don't need um, and that might throw you off when trying to answer this question. You don't need the 12% profit margin or the 3.25 net multiplier um, because that's already built into the billable rates. So um, the math, and this problem isn't super difficult math. Um, the hard part is that it continues to build off of itself. Um, meaning if you mess up one of the first equations that you do, and then you keep going, even if the math is the correct concept, but that first answer was wrong, you're now building off the wrong answer. So there's no way you're gonna come up with the correct answer in the end. So it's definitely important that you double check your math. Um, and that's why I did spend the time to label these out in the whiteboard. Um, it is all listed here in our history, which is helpful, but it's kind of hard to remember what number is which thing. So which number you're subtracting from. Um, so that's why in this instance, I did go ahead and label it out. 
Um, if you can remember, you might not want to spend the time doing this. Um, it's just where practicing problems like this help you figure out what's going to be the best tactic for you. Um, also, oh, I, was, I was just saying it's important to double check the math, um, but just think about how long I just spent on this one question. Um, you don't have time to be second guessing yourself. Um, so I would say just move forward. And if you look back and you're like, oh wait, I have this extra information here, the 12% and the 3.25, did I need that? Um, and my best advice there is just not to second guess yourself. You found an answer that makes sense. Um, you could flag it for later if you wanna come back to it, but um, these take up a lot of time. So I would recommend to not take even more time second guessing on problems like this. Yeah, I think your strategy of uh, using the whiteboard for this question, just because there's uh, so many parts to it, is uh, really useful. And comparing that to the first question where you just use the calculator's history function, um, I, I think that was the right choice in both cases. I would, I would, um, I would recommend um, after you read a question and you're sort of thinking about how to go about it, to decide for yourself what strategy you're going to use in terms of the tools that you have available. Um, a minor note I want to make about this answer is that um, Emily added a comma there in the answer. You can add the comma or not. It'll be marked correct either way. Um, that's sort of another thing that's that's up to you. Um, I think some people feel more comfortable putting the comma in because they might realize that they made a mistake if they had the comma in, particularly for large answers. Um, so it's really up to you, but I would decide before the exam what your stance is on commas, if you're including them or not, and do it every single time, whichever way you decide. Um, it just takes one less thing. Um, it's one less thing you have to think about during the actual exam. Uh, so the, the more you can eliminate um, thinking about sort of irrelevant things on exam day, the, the better off you'll be. Um, with that, I think we can move on to some Q&A. Um, we had a couple of questions on question two. Uh, Emily, if you can go over to question two for a second. And the first one is, will the B101 or other contracts be provided in the reference tab during the exam? Uh, the answer to that is no. Um, you, you might get lucky and maybe one of the case studies will have the B101 or excerpts from the B101 as one of the case study documents, but I certainly would not rely on that being the case. Um, during exam day. So it's it's important um, to be familiar with that document and with the A101 and the A201 and, and not rely on having it available to you. Um, and, and with that, Emily, do you have any um, suggestions on how people can study those documents and, and get comfortable with them? Yeah, I mean, I do think ultimately they that is one of the most difficult parts of the exam. Like you said, you often you can't count on getting lucky and having this in the case study references. Um, so you need to know what is in each of the contracts. Um, there are a ton of possible contracts, but um, as Chris mentioned earlier, uh, the B101, the A101, the C401 are the key documents. Um, so I would say knowing those three as well as maybe the A201 as well um, and reviewing those as much as you can just to know the content that is in them. Um, they can be pretty dense, so it's hard to expect people to be able to memorize them word for word. Um, but if you know that the B101 is the agreement between the um, architect and the owner, then you know that when we're talking about the architect's responsibilities, it's going to be in the B101. Um, and then just like in this question, it was talking about what is supplemental services. So that's something you definitely want to familiarize yourself with. Um, to know what's supplemental versus basic, um, and then also just how fees are paid as well. Um, I think it's hard other than reading through them and doing your best to like make yourself a key on where to find information, um, as well as I do think our workshops, just to plug them again, because I do think they're super helpful, um, because we give you questions that require you to go search through the um, contracts. I think those really help help you pinpoint what information is found where. Um, and I think that helps you um, overall as far as memorizing what contents in each uh, contract. Yeah, that's great advice. Thanks for that. Uh, I, I agree with all that. Um, and then another question, a uh, pretty quick question, I think for number two is somebody asked uh, to clarify if you're identified as the IDM in the B101, is it not considered an additional service? 
So what do you think about that one? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know, Chris, maybe you can elaborate, but I think maybe it depends on who the IDM is, because um, if I'm not mistaken, the uh, architect of record can be named as the IDM, but other entities, like in this case, can also be named as the IDM. So I feel like you would need some clarification on the situation. Um, Chris, could you give some more insight? Yeah, definitely. Uh, no, you, you were on the right path with that. I was a little confused reading this as well, but I think that uh, I think that what they're really asking is if you're uh, and put this question aside for a second, we'll just talk about a different scenario. Um, if you are identified as the IDM in in uh, in your contract um, with the owner and also in the owner's contract with the contractor, then yes, that is a basic service, and uh, therefore you won't be you won't be paid any additional service for that. Um, so that this question just that's not the scenario that was given, but uh, that's correct. Um, I believe that it's an additional service, and uh, I don't have the additional service list memorized, but I'm pretty sure it's an additional service if you have to evaluate a, a ridiculous number of claims as the IDM. Uh, so there's sort of a limit on how many claims you you would need to uh, deal with as the architect as the IDM. Um, but in a in a typical scenario, the architect is the IDM. Uh, the architect of record, I should say, and uh, that is not an additional service. Um, let's see here. We've got uh, sort of another question about this one. Uh, somebody's asking, do you recommend actually memorizing the additional services? Um, I could take this one and I would say definitely not. Um, like I said, like I just said, I have not memorized all the additional services, but what you can do is you should be really familiar with what basic services are and have the understanding that everything that's not a basic service is an additional service. In fact, I think the last uh, sentence or maybe the last line in that additional services um, portion of the B101 says that any anything that's not listed as a basic service can be an additional service by the architect if you agree to it. So. Um, I would go about it that way. I would also caution against the idea of memorizing really anything for the exam. I would, um, you know, there's obviously some things you probably need to quote unquote memorize, like financial formulas and things like that. But um, I think it's more important to think about it as learning it and internalizing it as opposed to um, rote memorization where um, you're just kind of trying to take a picture of it in your head and be able to spit it back out. And, and I, I think it's much more effective to um, internalize the information. Yeah, Chris, if I could add on that to that, um, for this question too, um, a lot of success in the test for me was being able to eliminate answers and not rely on memorization. And like when we went through this one, um, the other three possible answers if you don't have additional services memorized, you might not know right away what the correct answer is, but we were able to work through these other three options and we knew a little bit about dispute resolution. So we were able to eliminate the first two and then we were able to just reason our way through the third option not being correct. Um, so memorization is definitely not necessary and um, there's just so much to memorize. It's usually not possible. So there are other um, ways to, to get around that in the exam. Um, just by looking at the other possible answers that are available and trying to eliminate them. Yeah, I agree. Last thing on this one is I would recommend um, read read the supplemental services uh, list in the B101 a couple of times um, just just to read it. You'll you'll remember some of them. Some of them you'll forget. But uh, don't don't look at it like um, you know you need to read it. 50 times and be able to like write it out on your own. That's that's pretty ridiculous. You won't need that information for the exam, but give it a read a few times and uh, and, and you'll be pretty familiar with it at that point. Um, switching gears a little bit, somebody asked, I thought that billable hours did not include profit margins. Can you explain a little bit more? So, yeah, I mean, Chris, you might be able to explain it better, but billable rate is what we're using to figure out how to make that profit. Um, and you need to know multipliers to figure out how you're going to break even and then you're, how you're going to factor in that profit. And then that's how we come up with the billable rate. And that's how we know that we are going to make a profit whenever we bill out people for our project. Um, so I don't know, Chris, if you can explain that in a better way. <laughs> Yeah, I would I would put it this way. Like if you're 
if you think about what a billable rate is, I think the easiest um, the easiest compensation structure to think about is um, when you're charging uh, based on an hourly rate, right? If you if you have a project uh, with a client for let's say the schematic, you're, you're just doing some preliminary design for a potential project for them, you might be charging on an hourly rate, right? Um, that number that you're going to charge them, let's say it's $250 an hour, if that didn't include profit, your firm's not making any profit. Like, where's the profit coming from if it's not included in the billable rate, you know? Um, so um, sometimes if you're confused with uh, something like this, I would I would recommend taking a step back and thinking about what, what do these terms actually mean? Like, how is it used? Um, and I, I do that often. I, I, I don't necessarily have... Um, formulas or or things memorized per se you know I, I like I couldn't um I couldn't take a blank sheet of paper right now and write out all the firm financial formulas I don't have them memorized but when I see a question or when I have to um, do a calculation I understand how they work together um, it takes a little bit of practice to get to that point um, in your in your career and in your studies but that's um, certainly helpful for the uh, for the purposes of taking the ARE um, Let's see, we've got another question. Um, do you have any tips for memorizing the different formulas that can be used on the exam to answer questions when they come up, uh, like such as the utilization rate? Um, and then there was a, a similar question, which is asking what's the best strategy for um, studying for financials on part of the exam? Um, it's often where I get tripped up and I've attended the workshop on Sundays, but I can't seem to get all the different formulas down. Any suggestions? Um, so I've got some thoughts here, but Emily, I'll I'll, uh, I'll hand this one off to you first, and then I'll I'll share my thoughts. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I mean that is tough, and that's where I struggled the most on this exam as well. Um, there are a lot of equations, and knowing when to use them is super difficult. As far as knowing the key equations, I did write my own flashcards. Um, I believe that those equations are included in the Black Spectacles flashcards, but those are in like a huge set. So I did write my own um, set of you know, just the just the equation, so I could flip through the equations and see which one was which equation um, compared to each other, rather than just having them randomly placed in the the 200 different terms we have. Um, and I think that was helpful as far as memorization. But then, as we just mentioned, memorization doesn't always help you if you don't know how to use them or when to use them. Um, and my answer before I heard the full question was going to be, I do think our workshops are helpful in that sense because we go through and we work out the problems. Um, our quizzes and practice exams that have the financial questions, I think are also just as beneficial to try to take um, and answer as many of those questions as possible. So you just get used to figuring out which equations um, go with what type of problem. Um, and the benefit of the workshop is that we then discuss it and I try to give, um, Haley and I try to give more clarification on, on why we did what we did um, and how we came to those conclusions. But they, they are just a harder part of this um, exam. So Chris, if you had um, any more suggestions, I'd love to hear them as well. Yeah, well, um, I cheated a little bit in my answer because we have a great team at Black Spectacles of uh, director of learning, learning designer, and our program coordinator for the virtual workshop uh, program who I asked to give me some tips here. So um, I'll share what they told me. <laughs> um, one, one of the main things uh, that I think is helpful is making a cheat sheet um, with the example calculations and really like returning to it um, often and um, just, just having I don't know, an index card might be a little small, but like um, maybe like half a sheet of paper with with uh, all of the formulas that you need. And um, I don't remember the table number exactly, but um, I think it's on page 411 in AHPP. There's a, a great chart that has um, the 11 most common financial formulas that you need. Um, and uh, when when you're making that uh, cheat sheet, I would I would focus on Instead of focusing on, you know, net multiplier is this over that, I would focus on the utility of of the formula itself, or, or of the um, not not even the formula of the um, the term itself. Like, what does net multiplier mean? It's the number that I'm going to multiply my direct labor by to get a, a billable rate, right? Um, so that includes it's it's basically the way to include everything that you need uh, to run your firm, like overhead and profit. Um, and be able to multiply that by direct labor and get a billable rate. Um, I would do that for each of the 
formulas and or terms. Uh, this way you're not really memorizing things, but you're, you're studying their utility. Um, I'd also consider breaking down, uh, going back to formulas for a second, breaking down the formulas into a common denominator. Um, direct labor is a, is a common one. So you'll, if, if, you, if you practice doing some algebra and sort of get all of those formulas into the same common denominator, I think it'll help, um, you know, put everything on a level playing field and make it a little bit more digestible. Um, and then uh, a last suggestion here is um, you're probably not going to just sit down for a couple of hours, even attending a, a workshop on Sunday and, and studying a little bit after. You're probably not uh, going to get uh, your hands around firm financial metrics in, in that time. Um, you it's certainly certainly uh, spend that time and, and attend a workshop if you can, um, but you, you probably want to practice it on a regular basis. So if you're giving yourself six weeks to study for practice management, don't just do financial metrics in like four days and think you're going to be done with it. Try to work it into um, your studies over the over the whole course of those um, of those six weeks. Um, so with with the idea of repetition in mind, Emily, do you want to go to maybe question one again? Can you just open that up? and just talk through the, the the overall concept of the math that you did on this question and you don't have to go you don't have to go through the numbers again but just just to sort of ingrain it in everybody's memory the the logic behind the math on this question okay yeah um so here let's go ahead and just re-clarify what we were trying to do um which designer should the project manager staff the project with um, so here we saw from the exhibit, we knew we might be using the billable rates, the utilization rate. Um, so we were also given the overall fee for the scope of work. And um, our first step was to see if, um, if and which designer uh, had a billable rate that worked with the fee left over after we took out the principal's amount of the fee and the project manager's amount of the fee. So uh, to figure out what the principal and the project manager were gonna be um, taking up out of that total $9,000, we took their um, the amount of hours they would be spending times their billable rate, which was given in the exhibit um, to figure out that like the principal was roughly $3,300 of the fee. The PM uh, was $150 per hour and 25 hours. So that was roughly $3,700 of the fee. And then we subtracted that out from the overall $9,000 that was our whole fee altogether to find out how much money we had left over um, for the designers. And then we knew um, that the designers were going to be spending roughly 18 hours on this project. And we had about $1,875 for their fee. So we then divided that amount that was left over by the 18 hours to figure out um, what possible billable rates would work and not put us over our fee. So it was anything under $104. So that's the process we took um, for the billable rate and that helped us eliminate one of the possible answer choices because it was $110. So that would have put us over the $9,000 fee. Um, and then from, so that was the math that we did here and that just helped us eliminate one option. And then from there, we went to look at the utilization rate um, to see who had the capacity, the time to work on this project. And there was um, a more obvious answer with designer three of 0.75 as the lowest utilization rate of the three choices available. Um, so that was how we ended up coming to terms with the correct answer being designer three. Yeah, and I would say there's not like a formula per se in AHPP or anywhere that that you're going to just apply to this question, right? It's it's mm -hmm. um you're you're going through a few mathematical exercises to arrive at the correct answer. So that's um really like I, I think important to realize that a lot of the questions that you'll see, you won't just say, oh, I know the formula to use, and you won't just be plugging in answers. That would be um that'd be pretty simple. And since the ARE is is mostly scenario-based questions, there's just not going to be a formula that you can apply to most of these questions. Uh, all the more reason to uh, give those study tips a try that we just talked about and, and try to internalize the formulas as opposed to memorizing them. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just about it for today. Uh, just a reminder that our next ARI Live episode will be on December 15th, 2022. 
Our expert guest, Darian Ziegler, will be walking through a project management case study, looking at a few different original questions and offering test-taking strategies. We'll be sending out a mock exam link in the coming weeks so you can test your knowledge before going over your answers during the live broadcast. You can go to go.blackspectacles.com forward slash podcast to sign up or check out the PCM mock exam page in the ARE community. The lucky winner of the Black Spectacles t-shirt is C. Guthrie. Uh, congrats, C. Guthrie, and uh, we'll be reaching out via email shortly with more information. Finally, please stick around for a few minutes after the broadcast to take our survey and share any suggestions you have for future episodes of ARE Live. I promise we read every word and we use your feedback to make sure this podcast is as helpful as it can be. Thanks for watching. Thanks, everyone.